turning and acknowledging our reliance on him. And so that is, that is where we will start. Heavenly Father, I, I thank you for the opportunity to preach the gospel today. I pray, praise you that, that the gospel is even there to preach, that um, we celebrate the birth of the Savior, the, the Son that you sent to die for our sins. And I pray that as we reflect on God with us, um, that, that we would recognize that you are God with us, that you are in our, in our hearts, that you are amongst us, that you have bound us together as the body, that you are um, you're a God who, who uh, has not abandoned us like orphans, um, but comes to us constantly and walks beside us when we don't see you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Oh, so I uh, did something weird and accidental that turned out um, pretty good this year. I, uh, when we were on this retreat we did in Seattle, um, I, I bought a book. Actually, I didn't buy a book. I found it, and then later I bought it because uh, I had discovered it, and I said, well, I need this thing. I'm going to do this book. I'm going to work through it through the year. And I was like, they, they had these Advent devotions, and I was going to – hand out these Advent devotions. I'd copied it and formatted them, and I had it all set up to distribute. And then when I really sat down and started reflecting on them, and in fact, actually, our sermon series has been based on the structure of those devotions. And, and when I really started reading them, because I didn't do the Advent ones on the retreat, I did other ones. And as I really began to dig into them, I realized, like, these are not something I want to hand out. Like, they're not quite what I want. They're not... Um, there were just some problems. I'll leave it at that. And so I kind of backed up and said, well, what am I going to do? I really wanted to hand out devotions. I really wanted to do this thing. And I thought, well, I'll write devotions. I will uh, do this writing devotions. And I thought the first week before Advent, I would do this. Uh, on Tuesday and Wednesday, I would write four weeks of these devotions, and I would be done. And uh, on uh, Saturday of the first week, when I was finishing up the first week, having devoted just a lot more time than I anticipated to writing these things, I, I realized this was going to be a whole month of doing this all the time. And I have spent, I spent the first three weeks of this, this Advent season um, devoting, I don't know, 30 hours a week to writing devotions. And it uh, accidentally like created one of the best Christmas seasons I've ever had. Um, I have spent just a huge amount of time digging into these, like, ideas and, like, like reflecting on the meaning of Christmas, reflecting on the incarnation, reflecting on the prophets, reflecting on the story of our redemption, like, like just huge amounts of time, and then researching what famous, you know, what prominent speakers and writers had to say and looking for, for different angles and, and like, like, it's, it's, like changed my whole month. Um, I think I've read and prayed more this, like like dug in and focused and reflected more in this last month than I have like in my whole life. Like I think I've prayed more in the last month than I have in my whole life. It's been cool. Um, this week, however, is where this gets interesting or not good. Um, this week I said, well, look, Christmas and the fourth week of Advent are the same day. And so I don't actually have to write a fourth week. And Jess encouraged me to do so, and I worked on it. But also, I cannot express to you how busy I have been. But I was no busier than the preceding weeks. 
The difference is that instead of focusing so much energy and time on praying through this stuff and digging and, and consuming, I said, well, I can get away with not doing this. And instead, I started looking at everything else. I started looking at Christmas Eve service and music and um, the youth group Christmas party thing and reflecting and praying about that and buying gifts and all. I mean, like, it just got away from me. And then, like, on Wednesday... I was. I had to go and buy, I swear to you, it is not like Christmas is a thing we don't know is coming, to go out shopping to buy gifts that were not going to arrive on time or had not been thought of or whatever. And so I had to go. I'm telling you, do not Christmas shop the week of Christmas. It is awful. Um, but I did. And so I was in town all day. But before I could leave, my wife was like, Eric, you need to get the kids out of bed and make sure they're ready for school. And it was... Not good. Not good at all. Had I known that day was coming, I would have not bought gifts and just invested in coal. Um, <laughs> but, and so, like, and I'm, I'm overwhelmed, and I wanted to leave early so I would be back in time to work on devotions before everything started, and, like, I just couldn't get out of town. And it just got worse and worse and worse. And by the time I was in the car and driving, I was so angry and overwhelmed and stressed out and just, it was so much. And it wasn't one thing, it was all of it. And actually, when I got to the store in Great Falls, I was so scattered. And actually, I think Larry got to see me doing this this morning, where I got so many things happening and so much stress and pressure on me that I keep forgetting what I'm doing and doing something else. In Walmart, I lost my cart three times. I... I was in the toy section. No, I wasn't. I was in the pharmacy section because I had to get soap for a nursing home resident. And then I realized, like, oh, wait, where did my cart go? I can't put this in my cart. And I thought, oh, well, I was in the toy section because I was looking for this game. And so I went to the toy section and walked all over. There's no cart. And I'm like, well, what do I do with it? Oh, wait a minute. I was trying to buy a blanket, and I was calling just to ask about blanket dimensions because of the nursing home resident. I'll go over there. And I walked around that section and finally found my cart. And I, I, I cannot express to you how overwhelmed and stressed I was. But um, on the drive, I, I, had my, I had my phone on the little holder, and I hit the little dictate button, and I dictated a long series of angry texts to my wife. Not because I was mad at her, but because I've discovered if I vent a little bit, it gets better sometimes. Sometimes it's like a snowball. Other times it's like a meteor, right? Meteors burn up when they hit the atmosphere and they go away. Snowballs get bigger. This is the snowball morning. And, and so I finished up like just talking angrily about this. And I stopped and I thought, I was thinking the whole time, I was thinking, God, this whole month has been wonderful. What happened? How do I get back to you and have this peace and this joy and this closeness, why is it like this? Why, how do I come back? And as soon as I hit the stop, actually, hours and hours earlier, I was listening to a sermon. And the sermon kicked on, and it was about Peter walking on water and how the moment he stopped looking at Jesus, he sank. And that the whole purpose of encountering difficulty in life is keeping your eyes on Christ. And the moment you stop keeping your eyes on Christ, you stop walking on the storm, the storm walks on you. And I was like, well, there it is. It's my own fault. I spent the whole month praying and focusing and trying to be with Jesus. And instead, 
of that, I was trying to take care of everything. And it broke it. Broke it. Um, we're going to be talking about God is with us. And i got to go back, and like we've been doing Advent, we've been working our way through this series from different angles, looking at like the story of Christmas from different angles of prophets, and the, the predictions, and Joseph and, and Mary being the right people in the right place at the right time. And we're going to just talk about this idea that God came and was with us. And we're going we're gonna to dig into this. And, and there's some cool stuff here. Now, follow me. First off, um, the phrase is from the book of uh, Isaiah, which is in the Old Testament. I actually don't need to read it because I've read it repeatedly, and all of you have heard it. Um, this is Isaiah talking to King Ahaz, and he says, This will be a sign unto you, the virgin will be with child, and you will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Now, Emmanuel is used a handful of times in the book of Isaiah. And one time is actually used as a prayer when they're thinking, oh my gosh, the Babylonians are going to come and destroy the country. God, please be with us, Emmanuel. And so it's both a God is with us, we're overjoyed, and oh my gosh, God, come here and be with me now, right? But I got to admit, I knew the path, I walked the path, I enjoyed the path, and then in the middle of all of the stress that I decided to do instead of doing the path, I stopped and I'm like, God, how do I get this? And I was like, well, essentially the sermon I heard was, I, I was always there, you walked away. You stopped. You looked somewhere else. You paid attention to the waves and the storm and everything else. And so as we dig into this, like, like Isaiah's predicting that God would be with us. And actually Matthew picks up on this text, I believe Luke does too, and they draw out this idea that God, uh, the virgin would be with the child, and they would call him Emmanuel, who is God with us, because Mary was a virgin and she had a baby, right? The seed of a woman, which is from Genesis, and we've talked about that at no, like we've beaten that topic to death, and so we're probably not going to do it right now. Um, I am, however, going to read to you John's account of the birth of Christ, um, and the reason I'm going to do that is because to understand the virgin is with child and God is with us. It's an easy thing to say, but like John puts it from a slightly different angle. He says, in the beginning was the word. This is chapter 1, verses, uh, we're going to do 1 to 5, and then we're going to do 14 to 18. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him not anything uh, made that was made, was not anything made that was made, sorry. Um, in him was life, and the life was the light of men, which is part of the reason we light candles during Advent, by the way, is a reminder that Christ is coming, light. Um, and the life was the light of men, and the light shined in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I'm going to jump ahead to 14. Um, and the word became flesh. And dwelled amongst, among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as, as of the son, only the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. I love that. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Um, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. 
No one has ever seen God, and only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Why did I read that? Because God is with us. Like, we've got to put this in perspective, right? Like, this is a huge, huge thing. This is, by him all things were made. Through him all things were made. He is infinite. He is before time, before space. And then he stepped the infinite into the finite and, like, became flesh. And, like, the poem points out, or the prayer pointed out, um, and I, I don't know what I did with that book, so uh, I won't read it. Um, it points out that it was indissolusable, indissoluble. should have practiced that word. And the idea is that Christ is in the flesh, period. And so when we are in heaven, we will not be spirits or sitting up on clouds. We will be reincarnated in the flesh. And Christ, who is in the flesh for eternity, will be in the flesh with us. Like this was a one-way trip where he became man, and that is forever. And he will be with us forever. He was resurrected, the first fruit of the resurrection, like the first one, but he was physically resurrected, and it doesn't stop. And so forever we will be. And so like this is a one-way major change shift that he did, and it is a big deal. Why? Well, it's because of the three gardens. Now watch this. In the scriptures, you find three gardens. Um, And the first garden is Eden. Some people are awake. The Garden of Eden is perfect. It is the beginning. And it is the neatest thing that when you read, you can find this idea that like God would show up in the garden and hang out with Adam and Eve. That he would spend time with them face to face. Why is that? It's because of the chief end of man. Like what is our purpose Um, And actually, this is from some German catechism. I don't remember which one. Uh, Anyway, um, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's why 1 Corinthians tells us that whatever you do, whether it be eating or drinking, do it to the glory of God. Um, Ecclesiastes touches on this idea, too. It says the best thing a man can do in life is enjoy the gifts that God has given him, the work God has given him to do, and enjoy his fam- like his time with God, like enjoy God. Because we were created to know God and to glorify him. How do we glorify him? By being who he made us to be. We in Christ become more and more like Christ, and he is glorified by that. He's glorified by showing us mercy. He is glorified um, when he is like exchanges love with the creation. This is who God is. And so that was our purpose. And so our first garden, Eden, right? God is close to man, and he stands close. And is this close, intimate relationship. They walk, they talk, they, 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 I assume, share meals together. Like it is a whole thing. And then Adam and Eve fall. And what happens is the first garden ends, and there's distance between God and man. And so God created man to be close to him, and then we're not close to him. We go from being this close to being God is there, and we are here. Got it? We're far. It's a Grover thing, near and far. Near? Far, right? Um, And that is the first garden. The second garden you find in Scripture is Gethsemane. Gethsemane is the garden that Christ was in when he prayed and, like, basically he's saying, listen, God, if the cup can pass from me, let it happen, but not my will, but yours be done. He is doing this praying. This is a high priestly prayer, and he's praying because he is there. He's there to die for our sins, to fix this gap. 
But Christmas is a step, right? Because we're over here, and God's over there. And every time God talks, the earth shakes. And people glow when they get close enough to him because his glory, like, sticks to them, right? It's like um, uh, glitter. Everybody loves glitter around the holiday season. You don't get rid of it. You move it around, as Mr. Bond says. Like, God's glory comes on you, and you don't get away from it. It goes with you. And so, like, or, like, if you wanted to, you could approach God. He was up on the mountain, right, like Mount Sinai, and there's all this smoke and craziness. You could go up there and see him face to face, and your, any doubt you have would disappear moments before you did because his holiness would consume you like a fire. Um, and so God goes from over, like, this distance. And then when Christ is born, God is with us, right? God is with us, and he goes from far away to close. But it's actually not even us moving. It's him moving. He comes over here and looks at us face to face. He begins to restore us to our purpose as created beings, and that is to know and love God. It is to be in relationship with him. It is to glorify him. And then finally, if you read Revelation, I was going to do this, but I'm going to run out of time. Um, Revelation 22 has a vision of the end, of eternity in heaven. And there's a garden there. And the tree of life is there. This is Christ, really. And there are all kinds of trees and all kinds of fruit. And in heaven we'll be physically reincarnated. We will be in God, or re, not reincarnated, the wrong word, uh, resurrected. We will be in glorified bodies and we will live with Christ forever in the new garden. And so like the scriptures, these three gardens, right? Eden, Gethsemane, and heaven. It is the story of God redeeming us, fixing the brokenness, drawing us close. And it begins with, God is with us. God has shown up in the flesh. Like the prayer said, right? I could not draw close to him, so he drew close to me. He became like me to make me like him. I didn't plan that, actually. It was accidental. Um, so the whole of the scriptures is this story. And so this is the story of God with us and restoring that relationship. That is what Christmas is about. It's God coming from all the way over here, there to all the way here, like from far to near. Um, so what does it mean to say God is with us? How is he with us? Because you know what? There are days it seems like I can't find God to save my life, right? Or where I'll cry out and say, hey, God, where are you? I need you right now. And it's like, where are you? But how is he with us then? What is this? We're going to look at this from a couple of different angles. And first off, I want to explain to you, like Christ in the flesh is one step. The second step is the spirit. And we'll get into that in a moment, but it is not the end, right? Like, so Christ was God face to face, and then in the spirit is in us. He resides in us. He fills us. And so how is God with us? First off, in Christ, in the flesh, he faced the same challenges and obstacles as we have, and he overcame them. So understand why this is significant. First off, we're going to look at the wise men. Right? We all know the story of the wise men, um, the magi. It's funny how we've churched that up and painted it really pretty and nice. Um, but it's really just not. They were Zoroastrians. They were like astrologers and pagans. And they traveled from like way in the east to where Jesus was born. And John pointed it out to me. I never caught it until I heard him say it. 
they followed the same route that Abraham did. They came from where Abraham came, and they went to the promised land where Jesus was, where Jesus was born. And so, like, in doing that, they sort of pointed out a promise God made to Abraham. God said to Abraham, like, through me you will have more descendants than are grains of sand on a beach. And through your descendant, in the singular, the whole world will be blessed. There's a prediction about Jesus' birth. And, like, to highlight that, these men show up traveling, like, thousands of miles to get there to be with Jesus. Maybe traveling for as much as two years, actually. There's a good argument for that, that they traveled for two years to be there. And they followed Abraham's route. Why? Because Jesus is the fulfill of the promise made to Abraham. He is. And from there we see Jesus, like, in flight to Egypt to escape Herod. Why? Because, like, the Israelites went to Egypt to escape death. Right? Like at the hands of a famine, like in Joseph. The story of, by the way, a son who was dead and was suddenly alive again and saved his whole family. Weird how that parallels the story of Jesus. But they fled to Egypt to escape, right? And in, like in Egypt, they were under bondage because they were away from the promised land and because the, the Pharaoh was killing you know, the, the children so there wouldn't be too many Jews. By the way, weird parallel there, right? Like, what did Herod do? Herod found out the wise men tricked him killed all the newborn boys up to the age of two years. Um, It's another parallel with the book of Exodus. Uh, From there, we see Jesus doing the temptations in the desert where he fasts and prays for 40 days and faces Satan. And there's a whole story that parallels Egypt or Israel in the desert on their way to the promised land for 40 years. And it is the same story. Why is it there? Why are any of these things there? Because Christ did everything God's people did but where they sinned all the way, he did not. Right? Um, the story of Abraham and Isaac. Abraham's told, take Isaac up and sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. By the way, Mount Moriah, it's basically where, like, the mountain right by Jerusalem. It is the place Christ was crucified. So Abraham was sent three days with his only son to sacrifice him to God. And He says, well, no, like God will provide a sacrifice. And then God stops him and gives him a ram that's horns are caught in some thorns, which are an awful lot like the crown of thorns that Christ wore, probably the same plant, actually, in the same place. Why? Because Abraham and Isaac faced the same thing that Christ would face. The same place, the same story. The Old Testament is full of these things. Why? Because, as Hebrews tells us, we do not have a high priest who can't identify. We have a high priest who has seen what we've seen, who's experienced what we've experienced, who's walked the same path we have, and he did it without sin. But he understands what it means to be tempted. One of the craziest things I've ever encountered when I would go to AA meetings, you'd meet these guys who would be open about their struggles. And it was, they would talk and they would say, this is the only place I ever feel comfortable and the only place I've ever felt comfortable when I was sober. Like a lot of people drink because they're socially anxious. And they're comfortable around other people in recovery. And they're okay confessing their sins and all this other stuff. Why? Because everybody understands. Right? Everybody gets it. They feel their pain. Like, I know I've been there. Let me, I got no judgment. I know what's happened. Let me help you. Let me advocate for you. Let me, whatever. Christ has been through what we've been through. 
well, you don't know. You don't know how I've been abused. You don't know how I've been humiliated. I have sexual abuse, all this other stuff. But Christ was hung naked in front of a crowd of people. He was abandoned by all of his closest friends. He was beaten, spit on, whipped. You name it. Everything you can come up with, Christ experienced with us, before us. He walked the same path. How is God with us? He is with us because he's done it too. It sometimes drives me nuts when people say, I understand what you're going through. But Christ can literally say, I understand what you're going through. And so God is with us in a way that is meaningful, it's powerful. The second way I'm going to highlight today that God is with us in Christ is that he is like with us and helps us overcome. This is my primary text for this sermon, actually, and I, I am stealing this sermon from the podcast. Because when I was sinking and struggling and angry and frustrated and wondering how did I end up here, how did it end up like this, um, this is where the sermon picked up. This is from Matthew. This is chapter 14. Uh, and in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them. By the way, what's the word? Immediately. Immediately. Oh my gosh, we're in trouble. Immediately Christ says, nope, you're okay, it's me. Why does it matter? Because there are days I'm scared. There are days I'm frustrated. There's days that the storm is like running me over. And when I cry out, immediately Christ responds. I stop texting my angry rant. And immediately the sermon kicks on. Immediately the answer is present. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Now, Christ is with us. Christ is standing right there with him. And he stops and he looks everywhere but Jesus. He looks down. Oh my gosh, there's water. Oh my gosh, there's wind. Oh my gosh, a lightning, storm. Oh wow, things are a mess. And that was my week, right? Oh my gosh, I got to do this. Oh my gosh, I got to do that. I've got this responsibility. I get that responsibility. And instead of spending my time praying and digging and reflecting and keeping my eyes locked on Jesus through the Christmas season, like in my preparations for celebrating God with us, I wandered off. And the storm overtook me, and I was angry and frustrated and not very nice to people and a bunch of other stuff. And it took me days to get right again, even though I heard it. Lord, save me. Jesus immediately, it's the word again, right? Immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Um, I'd point out, this is 
very similar to the story where Jesus is in the boat and he's sleeping and there's a storm. And they're like, oh, wow, we're going to drown. And Jesus is like, are you kidding? I'm here. Don't you understand? And Jesus is like, tell the storm to stop, right? Wish I could do that with my kids. Um, why does this matter? Because God is with us. Because in Christ we have eye-to-eye physical proof during his life and now with us today, with us like everywhere we go, we cannot escape him. He is standing and watching. If we wander off, he is the good shepherd who's watching us wander and just waiting for us to come home and ready to immediately pick us up and bring us back, to immediately wash away our sins, to immediately save us. Um, Matthew has a lot of these kind of passages, but one of them, uh, Matthew 28, uh, is, presents this idea again, right? Or actually, John 14. Um, he has not abandoned us in this life, and he is with us. Like, this is actually in a larger text about the giving of the Holy Spirit. And what he says is, he's like, listen, I'm not going to leave you all alone like orphans. I am leaving a helper for you. I am with you. And so, like, we go from, he says, listen, I won't abandon you. I'll always be here. And I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, who's going to live in us. By the way, that's the last step, where we go from far, or near to far, to face to face, to Christ in our hearts through the Holy Spirit, which is amazing. It's amazing. But that is how he is with us. He is, the Holy Spirit resides in us. He nudges us. He turns on the podcast at exactly the right moment or sends the right guy in the door. Or sometimes people will say, Eric, it's like you sit in my living room and listen to me complain because you, you know, these sermons is like you're talking directly to me. You know what that is? That is not me. I don't know anything. I had the same thing happen when I became a believer. Like I, it blew me away. I'm like, this guy follows me around. I'm this 15-year-old kid and this pastor, every time he gets up and talks, he's talking directly to me. That wasn't him. That was the Holy Spirit. Like, because God is right there. He does not abandon you. He is with us. He is with you. He actually says it in Matthew 28. He gives the Great Commission. He says, listen, I am with you always to the end of the age. He does not abandon. Finally, and this is the last one I'm going to talk about here, and then we're going to get to our last point. Um, in Christ, in Christ, God looks at me and sees his goodness. On the cross, he saw my wickedness. Christ became sin who, you know, he became sin who knew no sin. Like he literally became my wickedness. And God poured his wrath out on Jesus in my stead, like in my place. And he looks at me and he sees Christ's righteousness. He sees the perfect record, whereas Christ got my garbage. Um, Whenever God looks at me, he sees that innocence. And because of that, Christ intercedes and advocates for me in, God, in the Father's presence. Meaning that when I struggle and pray, Christ carries my prayers up. When I, like, fail, Christ says, no, this guy's mine. When I, you know, when I came to know Christ, he was my high priest standing between me and God, offering himself as a sacrifice. He is my intermediary. And he's always there arguing my case before the Lord. When the deceiver, the accuser shows up, by the way, that's why gossip in the church is particularly sinful because the church, if we take on the role of accusing our brother of all kinds of sins, oh, you know what, you know, Jeremy, or what uh, Daniel Wee did, you know what, you know, TJ did, you know what Eric did, like we take on the role of accuser. We take on the role of Satan and say, hey, you know what, my brother 
let me tear him down. That's his job. But Christ stands between the accuser and the father advocating for you. He is always there. He is always defending. He is always ours. Couldn't ask for anything more because God is with us. Last one. He lives in us and is transforming us into his likeness. I'm going to explain this. First off, in that John 14 passage, read it when you get home. There are copies of the sermon outline if you want to get the texts. Um, He talks about this idea that he is leaving a comforter with us. And that comforter would take care of us and prompt us and direct us and change us from the inside out. That's why, by the way, with election year coming, and this is going to be the most insane, absurd election year of our lives, because it's going to be like, oh, the whole world's going to end if you don't vote this and that and a bunch of other nonsense. There is nothing in the world that will change this world apart from the blood of Christ, apart from people knowing Christ and becoming like Christ. It's going to fix moral like decline and divorce and all that other garbage. Christ is the only answer for that. It's not government or power. It is not top-down. It is not outside-in. It is Christ in us through the Holy Spirit changing us, the comforter that he sent us. We are literally the temple of the Holy Spirit. So temples are where God's lived. And God would say that to David. Look, I don't need you to build me a temple. I'm God. I don't need a house. <laughs> you don't need to build me a house. It doesn't make any sense. I'm not confined to four walls. You're, you know. And like finally, they build this temple so that we could know Christ. And for a little while, Christ was the tabernacle. He was you know, God in human, right? Like God, man, thing. And like, like that was God in like the tent of our world, traveling with us for a little while. And then he was sacrificed and he was resurrected and he is still in the flesh. But, like, that temple is now us. The Holy Spirit, if he lives in us, then we are a center of worship for for the Holy Spirit, for God himself. And so my heart, when I fill my heart with the word, when I set my eyes on Jesus... And I say, you know what, the storm, forget that nonsense. I'm going to look at Jesus. Man, I'm hurting, right? My arthritis is killing me right now. i got a few other things going on that are making me crazy. And every time I hurt, I can back up and say, you know what? Christ suffered worse. Every pain I feel, I get to stop and say, this is, this is something Jesus did for me. It's bad now, but, like, man, he did it worse. How much does God love me? When I'm lonely, I can stop and say, Christ was more lonely for me. And I can rejoice in that because I can know how much God loves me. And so, like, I, my body, your body, we are temple of the Holy Spirit. He lives within us. We carry the Holy Spirit everywhere with us. Now, we're also the body of Christ in this world. So when you sit in this room surrounded by other believers, you are joined to them with something stronger than concrete and brick and mortar and everything else. You are bound to them by the blood of Christ. You, me, we... We are Christ in this world. We're his hands. We give food to people who are hungry. We wipe away tears of those who are suffering. We act like Jesus. Share the gospel like the whole thing because we are the body of Christ. And he is with us as we stand together. By the way, I love the online thing. That's why we need to belong to a body and fellowship with other believers because you cannot get that anywhere else. You have to stand with other believers. You have to. This is it. Like, we are the body of Christ. If you're online and can't be here, let us know, and we'll figure out how to be the body of Christ where you are.
Because God came down to us, I'm sure we can go to you. Unless you're in Seattle, I ain't going to Seattle. Finally, Jesus lives in us, and we grow to be more and more and more like Christ because he lives in us. It's the last scripture verse I'm going to read. I underlined it and highlighted it, so it must be important. Um, But this is a thing that is throughout the scriptures. It is all over the place. You cannot escape how present it is. So it would be Galatians, which is in the New Testament, 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. What's he saying? He's saying, listen, old Eric died. New Eric is here, and he's alive because Christ died for me. Old Eric is dying off in stages, the old man, and I'm overcoming my sin in stages and becoming more and more like Christ. But fact of the matter is Christ is so holy and good and righteous that if he resides in me, I can't help but change. I cannot help but become different. It's a little like bleach. You ever spill bleach on your clothes? Just a drop. It doesn't even take that much, and you don't know it's there. But about 10 minutes later, you know it's there. And a few hours later, you definitely know it's there. And, like, if you leave it, it'll eat, right? Like, bleach literally consumes everything. It is awful. And if you breathe it in too much, it consumes your lungs. And all this, Christ is very much like this. It's probably a bad analogy, but maybe it's not, because where we look a certain way, he makes us white as snow, like though our sins be like scarlet. Christ is in us, and because he is in us, it cannot help but emanate and expand, and consume, and cleanse, and and make us white as the snow. I'm going to close in prayer, but my challenge for you is, as you've gone through this season, have you spent time realizing that God is with you, that you are celebrating, preparing to celebrate the day that Christ came and stood with us, God with us, so that when the storm comes, you can cry out, help me, Jesus, and he helps you. So when you wake up in the morning and you got weight in your chest, you can say, God forgave those sins. I'm made new. I'm not alone. This pain is an opportunity to know Jesus better. Whatever it is. So you can know God and glorify him together. So you can walk into the garden in eternity having been reconciled. If you haven't, you got a day. you got tomorrow. you got your whole life, really. Christmas is a day on the calendar. We remember. We prepare, we celebrate together. Doing it together as a body is a big deal. But you can do it all the time. So let's pray and I'll let you go. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd be with us as we prepare for celebrating the birth of Jesus. As we prepare to light candles and sing Silent Night. As we prepare to, to gather in the in the dark dark sanctuary tonight and remember the night that, that Christ was born and the night that the the shepherds heard the angels singing the night that you came to be with us. Help us to remember today that as we walk out the door, as we, as we carry any weight with us, that you are with us, ready to take it from us, ready to lift us out of the drowning ocean, like whatever it is, you are with us. In Christ's name, amen. There are Christmas ornaments in the back. We do this every year. Grab up a Christmas ornament, one for family.